Hello everyone, welcome to the another exciting session of our Lambda Test Experience Series podcast. Now, through Lambda Test Experience Series, we bring to you the latest innovations and best practices in the field of quality engineering, product development, and software business in general. Uh, we connect with industry experts and business leaders in this ecosystem and get a chance to learn from them. Now, I'm your host, Madhit Singh, Head of Growth and Marketing here at Lamethis, and it's a pleasure to have you all with us today. Now, joining me today as guest of the show are Adam Sandman, CEO and founder at Inflectra, and Dr. Sairam Rajgopalan, who is an agile evangelist at Inflectra. So, to introduce Adam, he drives product, technology, and business development initiatives at Inflectra. In the past, he was director at European Government Services, where he was in charge of development with the U.S. Marine Forces them and other government agencies. Uh, Dr. Sairam, he has two decades of experience in software industry. He holds PhD. I was going through his LinkedIn profile. He has more than 31 certificates. Uh, I don't know how he found the time to do all of those. Uh, he has certificates in program management, product management, and on top of that, he's also a, a contributor at Product Management Institute Guides. So uh, apart from all of this, he's also a community member, trainer, and coach. And along with Adam, they both are very, very important part of the community. They have done a lot of conferences. Uh, and Adam and Sriram, first, welcome to the XP series and thank you for joining us on the show today. Yes. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So in today's session, we are going to do a little bit of deep dive into the hottest topic that is right now, that is artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence intersects with one of the first and most important step that is test case and test case generation. When we start with any project, the first steps that people start off with is understanding what are the requirements and then creating test cases out of it. And one of the most effective things we see the use cases of AI in this scenario is how that specific use cases of AI intersects with the whole process of software testing, specifically the process of software uh, test creations, right? So this is, I think, a very interesting topic. Uh, in our survey, we recently did our survey on uh, future of quality assurance, and there as well, we see that currently nearly 46% of testers are effectively using AI tools, and the highest usage of AI tools is either in test data generation or in test case creation, right? So I'm starting with you guys, Adam. Let's see, what do you, are your thoughts on this subject? Well, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the thoughts and there's the, the practices. So it's yeah. interesting that you mentioned that. So we recently rolled out a, a, a plugin for our test management tool, uh, mm -hmm. and it was sort of an experimental plugin to get you know, user community feedback and see what they thought. Mm -hmm. What it does, it takes a requirement which you generate, which you write, and it, it and it will generate test cases. It also generates risks, it will identifies risks, and it can do BDD scenario generation. So it, when you talk about the requirement, it also it's not just generating test cases. It's also all the ancillary information around a requirement that often needs to be thought through. So you know, if, if you think about it pre AI, what would we do? We come up with a user story or a requirements or an epic, you know, whatever combination you're putting together, and then you go talk about it, think about all the possible things that that requirement implies like what work will need to be done what development needs to get done um what are the risks we should think about mitigating which testing you know is a mitigation for many risks so when you think about that whole process that would be people on conference calls zoom meetings or in person in the old days of whiteboards a lot of 
a lot of that was just you know brainstorming and past pattern analysis. So how did, when we do that session, what was happening is people are bringing all their experiences from previous projects and thinking about, well, I did this project that was an ERP upgrade for SAP. This requirement reminds me of that. Therefore, I think we should think about these tests, these risks, these um, former aspects. So it's basically pattern matching. We humans are good at that intuitively, but we often have biases. So if I've done an SAP project, I'm now doing an Oracle project, just to pick an example. Well, I'm going to bring all my SAP biases to this new requirement, even though this project is not SAP, just because that's my experiences. So the real benefit of AI is, A, of course, we have this plugin. You can push a button and generate a bunch of test cases and a bunch of risks. And that's, that's a great piece of functionality. It saves time. But more than saving time, it mitigates the bias effect, which is the AI doesn't know that this you or were previously an SAP engineer, it's going to look out and say, this is a, a, a you know, new requirement to create an order management screen for Oracle Financials. It's going to go out and do its research from its large language model. It's going to come up with all the test cases and the risks and all the information for that. It's not going to be biased by previous experiences. So then the team takes what the AI generates and can then apply their human experiences and human biases, which is a good thing because Often the thing that, quote, smells wrong to a, to a business analyst is important or a test designer. But you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting kind of that objective view from AI and the subjective view from humanity. You put it together and this human AI team is stronger than the sum of the parts. Uh, that would be sort of my, my thought to start with anyway. Shreem, what do you think? I completely agree. You know, one of the important things about any project for that particular matter is uh, it's not just a scope alone. So the product owner, project manager, somebody coming and telling this is what the requirements are. Um, what AI does is is putting a spotlight on some of the blind spots. You know, there is known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns and unknown unknown, right? So it is now putting the spotlight on, okay, what are my blind spots in my requirements? Um, so conceptually, technically, um, you know, schedule, scope, and all the other elements that comes with that, we are able to see and say, all right, now that I know a little bit about the unknowns that I have not factored in, what should I do? And this comes from both the management angle as well as from the uh, you know, technical delivery team angle. So what we are trying to do at this particular point is elevate that information and see now that I know more information about what will impact my project and ultimately the targeted audience of my, you know, my uh, product, uh, what should I do? So it's focusing on that good quality information. And one of the things that uh, Adam also mentioned is that the human artificial intelligence team. Now, if you think about the, the artificial intelligence as an additional team member, because they are providing some input, right? You know, uh, unpaid or paid, however you want to call it. Like, you know, it's an additional team member who is providing some intel and that person has to explain that person himself or herself, right? So it's very important that the AI is also able to explain the reasoning and the rationale begin why I said this, why I am trying to tell this and stuff like that. So, it's uh, one plus one is always greater than, you know, three. That's the idea behind uh, artificial intelligence coming and adding value for requirement scenarios and test case scenarios. That's a kind of very interesting point. We were talking about that uh, artificial intelligence kind of as an added tool set, uh, let's say value add uh, accelerator of sorts. And uh, the, one of the biggest advantages that it removes few of the blind spots. So that also interacts, intersects with one of our key metric that kind of organizations are going after that is test coverage or uh, let's say overall coverage of the whole core itself as well. So what do you guys think that uh, can the organizations first rely on AI for this concept of test, uh, test coverage 
and if they can, how they can effectively use the AI components to kind of drive that test coverage. So if, if I can uh, take that lead in this particular question, and then you know probably I'll pass it back to you, Adam. Um, no so one of the important things that we have to keep in mind is the answer in a nutshell is going to be yes, but it's a hmm. qualified yes. Yes, we can hmm. use AI to generate test coverages, but AI relies on uh, the training data um, that it is using to create hmm. all this information. So even if you take ChatGPT, for instance, you know it's it's uh, gathering all the language models and then putting some information about where the data is coming from. So garbage in, garbage out. So if the training data is not going to be very good or stale, then the, the outcome that is coming from the test generation, test case generation, is not necessarily going to be effective. So one of the things that we have to, you know, constantly think about is, you know, I'm sure you probably are aware of this, uh, you know, big, uh, so four Vs of the big data, you know, the volume, the veracity, the velocity, and um, um, variety. Um, so if you look at that, you know, you have to constantly be in a mode where you are engaging and training the data model itself so that the outcome you are creating from the AI model is going to be you know, very effective. So it will be helpful for edge cases, uh, you know, boundary scanning um, and making sure that you are able to come up with not just happy path scenarios, but also unhappy path scenarios exception flows, uh, alternative thinking um, that comes up with, uh, you know, the use case generation and stuff like that. So I think it can be used for a number of different things, so long as you constantly keep the training model effective. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, risk-based testing, for instance, it can come uh, and add value to it. And even in Spira, we have risk-based modules where we are able to come and say, based upon the risk score associated with the requirements, these requirements require to be, you know, test, tested more thoroughly than, you know, some other models. So if you have limited amount of time, what is the requirement I should really test? So it comes up with all those scenario thinking and then create the test case uh, as well, test cases as well. Um, what do you think, Adam? Um, that yeah, I mean, I think it's a qualified yes is exactly the right answer. In terms of, so in terms of generating test coverage, uh, you know, in our, in our experimentation, we, said we, we released this plugin, right? And we thought it would be, people would play around with it. But many of our customers are in these sensitive, complex industries like insurance and, and banking. And we're thinking that although this might be useful for an e-commerce website or something very simple, is it going to be useful in a more complex industry? Well, it turns out these people have been very excited about the plugin. They really want to use generative AI. AI. And when we've been doing our, you know, our testing and we do demos and webinars with the, with the tool, it's amazing. You put in a, a single requirement like, I want to be able to reserve a hotel room. And it, it's able to generate useful, I mean, it generates like 10, 10 to 20 test cases, which are very useful. And, you know, our, our head of QA looks at it and goes, you know, of that 20 test cases it generated, um, 10 were things that were somewhat obvious that I would have thought of, but it generated them in 10 seconds to, to create them all or upload them from an Excel sheet would take I don't know, half an hour to an hour. So even the ones that they knew of were a time saver. So there's a productivity benefit mm -hmm. for test coverage generation. The second thing uh, of, the, of the remaining 10, five were things that didn't make sense that we deleted that obviously then takes time up. But, but they are thought-provoking. And the last five are ones that we haven't thought of initially. There were things like booking a hotel reservation with the, with, you know, for, uh, for four years. Hotels don't like you doing that. That's a different kind of business model. And we wouldn't think to do that as a tester often. Or a hotel, we did a flight reservation and it said, try and book a flight to the same city. So there were things that as a human, you know, they're negative test cases, but you often overlook them. And so it was very good at, at generating both a combination of happy path, as Shrim mentioned, and boundary condition test cases. Um, I think we, when it gets into a qualified yes is, 
These are also use cases that the general public is aware of. So there's a lot of trading data about booking flights. I mean, how many flight reservation systems are there? You know, Expedia, Travelocity, Booking.com, Hotels, you know, .com. There's a lot of public data out there. So an LLM is very good at that. But let's say we were developing a brand new IT system uh, or a brand new, you know, wearable device that no one's seen before. It's heavily patented. It's got very restricted IP. First of all, you probably don't want that going out into the public LLM. But even a, even a private LLM won't necessarily have enough training data. There won't be enough variety of data. So as you get into some more specific requirements that are more niche use cases, there may not be as much benefit, as much lift from AI, just because there's not as much data. And that's where you have you know human researchers um, and other kinds of AI may help though non generative AI, things that are doing data analysis of your industry, you're crunching large data that's very industry specific, that could be a more useful approach than sort of generative AI, which is more text-based completion. So um, I think AI will be useful, but maybe other flavors of AI may come into play more. So like cognitive AI, the kind of things like IBM Watson, like the original right. application of yeah, AI. Yeah, the deep learning, deep learning AI machine, not, yeah. not necessarily generative AI, which is just one, one type of AI use case, one type of model. Like right. people are very happy about generative AI today, but AI has been around since 2016. Oh. I've been hearing IBM Watson, right? And uh, Google, for example, right. they have been using deep learning in their searches for, I think, a decade now. Uh, Absolutely. So, so, yeah. And one of the things, one of the AI use cases we're looking at is completely different to generative AI. What, the, yeah. what it is, is they're building a model where they're looking at all the code commits in a, in a Git repository. They're looking at all the test failures and correlating mm -hmm. those to see if we make these kind of code commits, which kind of tests should we do? Predictive maintenance, we would call it in a, in a manufacturing environment. And that's a different type of use case. And we have a partner that's working on that right now, but that's beneath the kind of the spotlight. As you say, everyone's looking at generative AI. It's going to do all yeah. this stuff. And it is. Yeah. But that's just one track of AI. And there's so many other tracks that are ongoing. I think the risk yep. is that all the money flows to just one use case. You know, everyone follows the hot money, and that's the big danger. So all these other branches of AI are going to get defunded or deprioritized, and that could be a big loss to the industry. Yep. You know, that's what you think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, so extending some of the concept that we were just discussing over here, mm. one of the things that we also have to think in terms of the test case generation or test case coverage and stuff like that is abuser persona. So I, I've been uh, long speaking about abuser persona because a lot of times we are actually creating the unhappy and happy path scenarios based upon the persona that we already know. I mean, today's products are getting a lot more sophisticated. Like, you know, you don't even have a user interface like software as a medical device. You, uh, you know, so when you are having a implant on your heart and there is no, you know, press one to do this or go to a menu bar and do this. You know, there's no mm -hmm. such thing, right? So having a heart attack, press one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all the ad updates are happening at the same time. So, you know, when you are looking into these kind of sophisticated uh, product development, you can also think in terms of uh, hackers, like how can a hacker actually abuse this uh, interface? So thinking about those abuser personas and coming up with test cases for that. So as your product is maturing, you also want to start thinking in terms of, okay, it's not just the requirement and the test cases. It's like, what are the other types of people who may have a malicious intent um, and, you know, hack the system completely differently? And, you know, uh, it may end up in life loss coverage at this point. So there is a lot more to think in terms of where the test cases can actually come into play, not just creating a test case like as a user do this, but who is that user? You know, it can even elevate to additional right. levels.
Right. So I think uh, that kind of opens up to another set of questions. So we talked about uh, how the organization should look at data specifically. We also talked about persona, which, but we all agree this fact that yeah, AI is going to be a disruptive. All the flavors included is going to be a disruptive field, specifically in the field of quality engineering. But as an organization, as a large scale organization who is just stepping into this new world, what you think are the most important factors these organizations should consider when they are moving into this space, this ecosystem of AI-assisted technologies in testing, and what they should prepare to stay up to date and kind of go with the flow in this new world? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, organizations have to, I think, if I guess take this one first, organizations need to understand um, what their what their clients' industries are, what their clients' legal and privacy, and for first and foremost, uh, what context is, because the danger will be is that you start to you use AI before you understand all of the implications of using it. Um, and like you know, like for example, law firms are, are right now struggling with people outside of software development using it to do legal preparation, and many and consulting firms have, have the same thing. And I know a lot of the times the they've had to now send down mandates that. You know, nothing should be done through AI right now until we understand the legal regulatory frameworks that go with this. So I think it's fine to have experimentation. So I think companies should, first of all, have teams that are explicitly experimenting, experiment. That's a great thing. Understand what it can do. Try it out on sanitized projects. Maybe try it out on a previous project and compare it with what actually was, was generated by humans to do some A-B testing. Um, but I think having some rules in the coordination around is this experimentation, is this actually being used for real projects is important because the danger is people start to use it for real without understanding what the, the implications of what they're doing and it evolves into being used in real time until it's too late. And then you end up with major problems. So I think being very intentional in an organization around this is experimentation, this is a trial project, this is in, this is in production, what elements of AI are we going to use at each of these phases and where are we on the maturity curve, which may be different for each industry or company. Um, so I think that kind of top-down guidance and planning is critical, and then teams should feel free to experiment within the, within that you know context. Uh, Shreya, what do you think? Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, so one of the important things that we have to keep in mind is where is uh, experimentation and where is um, you know production um, coming into play. You know, that needs to be really clearly uh, you know uh, differentiated. And within each one of those boundaries, you know, we call this in project management, enterprise environmental factors and organizational processes. So people, process, technology, and organization, we have to think from all those four dimensions into this environment scanning. So I already mentioned about data, you know, the, the, the efficacy of uh, the AI model or machine learning model is primarily dependent upon how effectively we are training this. We talk about continuous learning, continuous improvement, continuous delivery, continuous deployment, you know, continuous integration. We talk about continuous so often, we have to actually apply the same concept to continuously training our organizational resources, which includes our people, as well as our processes, as well as our AI. You know, AI is that additional, you know, third person that we have hired who is not going to be paid, right? So we have to constantly train from the data angle. And also the product has to be evaluated. You know, how is our product actually getting used in the production setting? Because in, in reality, you may work in a very nice environment within your organization and see that this product is really working fine. But as soon as you take the same product and put it into a real life environment, um, it's, it's completely different. What does the product speak about where it is being played, uh, where it is functioning and stuff like that? From that angle, when you look at this, 
the environment in which a product is being used, are we actually simulating that enough? You know, so for instance, you have a facial recognition. And is a facial recognition software working fine? Absolutely fine. But when there is not enough light, when there is uh, a lot of, uh, you know, changes in your face, um, will that facial recognition actually work correctly? And this is where, you know, Adam was referring before, and we have been talking about that, you know, intentional or unintentional bias. How are we actually bringing those kinds of concepts into our data? So there needs to be both an inward-looking and an outward-looking thought process on our people, process, technology, and the organization as a whole. Otherwise, we are not going to be training our organization effectively for continuously using these uh, um, AI models. And I, and I suppose what, what you'll probably find is the companies that shortchange training their human employees are going to be the same companies that will shortchange uh, training their models because it, a company that doesn't value investing in its work, intellectual, the intellectual well-being of its workforce, doesn't believe in developing its workforce, whether that's human workforce or a machine workforce, it's going to be the same because, you know, right. investment is investment. People, uh, companies that have a history of long-term decision-making investment will have, I think, a greater success trajectory with AI as they will with human resources. And companies that, that believe in just taking that off-shelf the model and deploying it in the same way they would outsource their development to the lowest common denominator without qualifying the company or the people will have the same kind of results. I mean, it's just a predictor of failure. Right, absolutely. So that kind of uh, also intersects, like we're talking about, let's say, training and training of AI models. Now, this is a question that I kind of received when I was uh, having an interaction with a financial company. So uh, they were trying to use AI tooling in their overall process. But the challenges was that AI, because AI is learning and AI is also evolving step by step, the results they were getting pre-production and the results they were getting post-productions were kind of a different because in between that time AI has it, changed, right? So how it's non can companies non-deterministic, right? It's non-deterministic, right? So how can companies kind of adapt to this rapidly changing AI environment, specifically in an agile development where we want to be fast, we want like AI to give results fast, learn fast, but at the same time we want it to be a predictable result. Well, that's maybe maybe the issue, part, I don't know, in my perspective, the issue may be a misunderstanding of AI then, because in the same way that if you put humans, so if you put humans into a situation, we wouldn't expect predictability at that level. Right? So if you, put the, if you put a team in place and you start asking them to write stories for a new feature and you start asking them to write test cases and, and do testing or write automated code, um, they would do it in one particular way. Now, that very same team, six months later, a month later, might do things slightly differently, depending how they felt that day, depending on the... Uh, who is the team lead of that person? So we don't we don't demand that level of predictability from humans. And I think because people are used to procedural software, which mm -hmm. has hundred percent accuracy, and, and and that's always the good and the bad with computers. It could be hundred percent right and hundred percent wrong. It'll follow the instructions blindly. But mm -hmm. AI models are are, new, are like a neural network. They're not learning the same way. They're learning more like a human. And so I think people are expecting the wrong, in some ways, the wrong answer. With AI, it's learning and getting better. But it's changing. And I think so companies have to switch their headset, their mindset from I'm going to get predictable results every sprint to being I'm going to get potentially improving results every sprint or maybe deteriorating depending on the, the quality of the inputs. Um, and I think you have to, now how do you solve that is a difficult question, but you have to be prepared for that. It's not a simple procedural program anymore. It is a complex interacting system of data elements that's it's evolving. Um, and I think it, you just you make two queries in ChatGPT today, you get two different sets of outputs. If you use our plugin to generate test cases from a requirement, for the same requirement, if you run it now and then you run it this afternoon, it will be slightly different. 
I think that's the nature of AI. Tram, what do you think? I yeah, I, I was just thinking about uh, you know what one of my uh, professors uh, about thirty years back you know told I was uh, studying in uh, and working in uh, University of Aberdeen, um, and uh, I had an idea you know how do I transduce the contents of a human brain onto a microchip so that um, you know you codify the the input in the problem and then the output comes like how Einstein should have thought or how Shriram should have thought or how Adam should have thought you know even when you know, none of us exist uh, in that particular scenario. Um, and my professor at that point said like, you know, the human mind uh, lacks uh, enough intelligence to understand itself. So we are like, you know, 300 years from at this particular point to even understand what a mind does uh, to even codify, uh, you know, the way mind should, uh, you know, understand things. Um, so the reason why I'm telling that is uh, we don't understand our own intelligence and we have been in this world for so many years at this point, like humans, as humans. And now AI um, does not have so much uh, evolution at this point. Yes, it has been present for several decades, but it's never going to understand itself. So it's ne- it's constantly learning. You know, when you look at uh, different kinds of algorithms used for problem solving, like uh, random forest and uh, neural networks for deep learning and stuff like that. When you take into consideration all these things, they are constantly learning it themselves, which means there is going to be less understanding about accuracy, not enough precision, and not you know enough recall. And these are the three key metrics that the AI uses, like you know recall, uh, precision, and accuracy in terms of how it is doing good in the model itself. So if we don't understand that, and then we immediately say you know 100% predictive results in pre-production and post-production. As Adam very nicely started this discussion with, that's misunderstanding about AI, which means we had to go back to our previous question and try to learn ourselves and train ourselves again. Organizations, right? Organizational understanding, absolutely. And I, I, and I think the 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 models, I mean, the models are evolving over time, and of course, people. And now talking about the idea of detachable AI, where you could take a model and you could take it from the, the live training model and you could detach it onto a smaller powered device like a phone, run the model locally, in which case it isn't necessarily retraining. It is mostly a snapshot in time. So I suppose one mitigation could be a team could take a snapshot of a, of a model that, that's effectively frozen at a certain learning stage, use that for a series of sprints or up to one release and then refresh the model. So you, you in some ways, it's like... They're taking a training course, and at the end of the course, you're now a different person. So you you would have you would have, I think, predictability over a certain number of cycles, and you would have a little bit more control over how frequently it's being improved. That might maybe give you the benefit of predictability. Um, maybe again, it depends a lot on, as you said, on how how well the model is in terms of its precision. Um, and I think demanding precision from an AI system by itself is probably a bad idea. You need to. It, particularly generative AI, it's very good at generating lots and lots of ideas, and then you need either AI or humans or some combination which to, to, to then give feedback on that test cases to determine. So what you could even have is a situation where generative AI comes up with a thousand possible test cases, non, you know, non-generative but deep learning AI takes out those test cases, goes out to you know, videos of user experience, goes out to historical data, does an analysis, and it then suggests that of these 100 test cases, 60 are good, 20 are useless and some the other ones might be you know, potentially useful and grades them. So you have different AI models working together to improve, not necessarily the predictability, but give scoring and accuracy and feedback, like dynamic feedback on the other models. So you have different AI models working together in the same way that a human team 
you might have a, someone who's, who's got a personality of a visionary, you know, on a Myers-Briggs scale, or you know, very, very, you know, forward-thinking kind of person. Talks to the, the person on the team who's the risk person, who's the worry wart, the oh my god, it's, the world's going to end. And in any given team, when you build a team, you know, when you build teams, you always want to have those different personalities. As a project manager back at Sapien, I always remember, I would always be asked, who's the, the negative, who's the most worried person on the team? Talk to him about all the risks in the project and combine his ideas with the ideas of like the visionary on the team who's like, we should do all these crazy new tech frameworks. Put them together and you get something that actually is usable, you know, is usable, usable useful, realistic, and probably will be delivered on time. And in the same way, different AI models have different benefits. Uh, generative AI is very good at generation, right, as its name. Other forms of machine learning are very good at feedback, are very good at scoring, very good at quantifying data and providing analysis. Put those together, and now you're getting that integrated, dynamic, cross-functional AI team together with the human team. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I cannot I, you know, overstate this any more than what uh, Adam was uh, trying to say over here. It is very important for us to understand that, you know, it... I, Generative AI is the one that is actually taking the world by storm at this point, you know, possibly because of ChatGPT. Nevertheless, it is multifunctional team. When we are looking at a team, we are having like data scientists, you know, business analyst, product owner, developer, designer, UX artist, and you know, so many different thought processes are coming together. One person is not doing everything. Right? The yep. same way we have to use different AI models for different kinds of scenario and different kinds of problem understanding. And then come back and say, based upon all these school of, you know, the machine workforce, uh, you know, providing ideas, let's go ahead and, you know, make this a little better and stuff like that. So that's the better way. And also you mentioned about agile. And so I, I want to, you know, pick that also. Even mm -hmm. within an agile, um, you know, con construct, we have this uh, Moscow principles. I'm not sure if you are familiar with that. The must to do, should to do, could to do, and want to do. You start doing something so that you release capacity. And then within that, you are trying to innovate. So this concepts of I did this and is it working in a pre-production environment, not necessarily as a completely released functionality, but as a beta functionality. Is it working? Is it, is it giving the desired effort? Are we missing something? And then taking it back and iteratively improving it. That's the whole idea of begin agile, right? So it's not fail fast, it's fail forward. That's an important thinking to keep in mind. Um, so I think the whole idea should be brought in the idea of I am trying to do a, a, a qualified experiment and getting the feedback and then trying to constantly improve it. So don't aim for 100% perfection, but try to aim for better perfection with every increment you are trying to. Awesome. So we have been going in this fact, like we have been looking at this, what organizations should do, what organizations should take care of. I want to take a step let's say a little bit back or maybe a step sideways and understand what your advice should be to the test manager, to the team leader, team manager, who's going to use this AI tooling, what preparation they as an individual should do, what they should learn more about, what they, uh, let's say, uh, what time they should invest more in to get prepared for all of this. So if I can take a, uh, yeah. you know, my yes. first cut at this one, um, understand the business goals you know we keep talking mvp minimum viable product and what is the business strategy and you know value stream mapping and things like that uh, these things are not just words uh, there are lots of understanding you know that needs to go behind them so understand the why 
before you start using ChatGPT to write your paper or come up with scenarios and you know <laughs> stuff like that, think about the why. You know, who is our targeted? You know, I used to do agile consulting, and I go back to some of these teams and ask them, uh, you know, what is who is our business customer? And they will tell me the names of the persona. No, I'm not interested in the persona. I'm interested in who is our target customer base. They couldn't articulate that. What's the purpose in developing a product when we don't even understand our customers, right? So the why is extremely important and what field we are operating in. And then comes the what and the who and the when. And who is nothing more than an AI contributing here, right? So please focus on understanding the business goals, business objectives, and then how your product is aligned with that business strategy. So if your business goal is to actually launch something to the moon and you are actually, you know, writing something that will actually have, you know, go uh, under the water, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's completely not going to be aligned, right? So making sure that you are trying to align your product strategy later with your business strategy. And this is not going to be very easy because the people have to, you know, move away from the developer has to think as a tester, the tester has to think as a, you know, as an operational person, and all of them have to think like a business analyst. And so, in 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 project management world, we have been talking about the ways of working, and one of the things that we have been telling is, you know, we need to move away from the T-shaped skills. T-shaped skills is a minimal requirement; it's not a maximum requirement. T-shaped skills of Horizontal thinking and vertical domain knowledge is a minimalistic thinking. Since then, we have moved to the pie shape with, with more knowledge and then E-shaped and, you know, a lot more knowledge. And, you know, we have moved on to lots of, lots of these domains. So we mentioned before cross-functional training, repeated training, you know, ongoing training of employees and uh, the, the data set and stuff like that. So making sure that you understand the business objectives and making sure that your product strategy is properly aligned with your business strategy and then making sure that you are continuously training yourself to develop that cross-functional expertise. These are the main three things that I would suggest to anybody in any workforce that is in the product development that uses AI at this point. Right. And I think to answer the, I think 100% right. I think that that makes sense. I mean, I remember back in, in my consulting days, the first thing we always asked any client was, you know, what was the business context and which would be, what were your challenges? You know, what what would drive what was driving you to change from a we need to change because there's pain. Uh, what are the future you know upland you know sunlit upland opportunities we want to get to, and then what's going to motivate us to make that change? And usually it's a combination of future benefits and current pain that you together gives you, and then you would take that and decide well how does the product move me from my current state pain to my future opportunities? And what are my competitors doing? And how does it move us ahead of our competitors, for example? Um, and in doing so, that helps you come up with product market fit. And, and understanding the TAM of your product, you know, what's the total number of people, is there a viable business model? So all these things get done before we even get to the test manager. So, but I think to answer the question about the test manager, the test lead, that's a little bit further downstream. Let's assume at this point that the team does know what the client's drivers are, understands why we're building this piece of software. The, the question then is, as a test manager, what do I do about AI? How do I use it sensibly? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question because the danger is, I think, I always think it was the tyranny of the done. Like so, you give you give it you give a test writer uh, some user stories or some ideas. Well, they're like, well, I've got to get this done very soon. So the easiest thing for me would be just to click on this button to generate some test cases. You quickly look over them. Oh, I, I reviewed the ones. There's twenty that are, I said that generates twenty, ten that are good, five that are bad, five that are interesting. I'm done. 
if that AI didn't exist, that, that task writer would be like, well, let me go and think about the problem a bit. And I think that's the problem. We, the danger for the test managers and the test leadership needs to literally get a you know, hammer and like bang it into their team. Like, don't disengage your brain. Mm. AI is a tool. And so as an analogy, let's think about writing. So before we had spell checkers, we would all write emails and we would have spelling mistakes and we knew they would be there. So we'd review the, the content of our email very well and we would make sure there were no spelling mistakes, but some would get through. So then we have a spell checker. The spell checker means that we get this nice red underline. And so we now right click and change all the words so there's no misspellings. So now there's been an increase in grammar issues because people are choosing the wrong word or they, because they're so used to that being done that the grammar mistakes that it doesn't flag. Now, of course, now that now the tools are getting smarter, they're checking for grammar. But even there, the gra- it, oftentimes it's false positives or they miss things or they misunderstand what you're writing. So the danger is the crutch means you disengage of, of the AI in some ways, means you disengage your brain. So I think the role for a test leader is to, under- is to emphasize to the team what the AI is going to do, it's going to, as you said, for the Moscow principle, it's going to release some time that, that's, that you spent manually creating a bunch of maybe repetitive test scenarios. That's going to give you time. With that time that it gives you, that doesn't mean you should do, take on more user stories. And so now you've got, instead of 10 user stories that you've got good test cases for, we've now got 100 user stories and we've got bad test cases. AI is not, that's not a good use of AI. The key would be, can we use the additional time to make the, the, the test scenarios better so that we have instead of 10 test cases with good 10 stories, sorry, with good test scenarios, you maybe have 15 or 20 with excellent test scenarios. So you're improving quantity and quality. The danger otherwise, AI is going to improve quantity and deteriorate quality, which is the opposite of what the effect you want to have. So I think that's the, 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 the goal for test leaders, the test management, test leadership, quality engineering leaders is using AI to improve quality and efficiency and balancing these two imperatives because we want speed, we want quality. And the danger is AI will be used to improve speed at the expense of quality, which it doesn't have to. That is a completely intentional choice. Or, or if you don't make an intentional choice, it will be the unintentional outcome. Unintentional outcome, yeah. yeah. So AI is another tool in the, your toolbox, in your toolkit, and it has to be used uh, let's say with a brain, with a human brain. So uh, it sh- it can give you results, but you should use your own intelligence to understand it is a good result or a bad result. So that is pretty important. But again, mm-hmm. it can help you accelerate things, but it is just another, let's say, tool set. So it's the, how you are using that tool set that will define the overall productivity of the AI tool as well. So mm-hmm. you are generating negative test cases, but you should also look into the fact like if these are the only ones, is there's a possibility AI can miss negative test cases as well, which you know sure. better because you are the kind of the business owner, business leader in that fact. So you understand the business better than the AI model can. Right? So that's pretty important. Yeah. So with that said, I also want to take, uh, let's say, I would say this would be a kind of a last uh, question. What are the toolings that you think are pretty, uh, that the organizations can use right now? So we know that there is ChatGPT that they can use in Gen AI, but what else tools, uh, AI-based tools do you see in the industry right now that would be uh, pretty helpful that not just big organizations, but everybody in the software industry can start using? Do we to go, Shriam? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we talked to lots of different companies. I'm not going to mention the names. Some are competitors, some are... <laughs> Uh, customers, sorry, some are partners. So, um, but it's interesting what's out there. So there are AI tools out there right now, which can do requirement scoring. 
and mm -hmm. and what they do is they'll look at the requirements and they can now analyze them. And this is and this is completely different to generative AI. It, it existed three or four years ago, and they will look at the requirements and they will score them and come back with a uh, feedback on how well the requirement is written. Uh, a simple example might be it uses lots of of words like it, they, rather than saying the customer or the 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 approver. And so the nouns are are indeterminate, or it may use words that are unclear. Um, I don't know. Basically, it, it can rate how well that requirement is written and how easy could it be understand by someone other than the person who wrote it. Does it cover all the edge cases? And so that scoring is a very useful set of functionality. And that right now it was was originally used for the purposes of helping improve human written user stories. I am sure as we use generative AI, AI to write user stories, which I'm sure people are doing, um, these types of other AI can be very useful. And this already exists on the market. So requirement scoring tools are good. Other things we've seen are tools that will look at code, the code commits. And I mentioned the code quality. They can identify where there's likely weaknesses. Um, either because it may look at known patterns like you know null pointers, or it may just look for historical. When you commit this code, we had lots of tests we that failed. When we committed this code, it didn't. And maybe it will be able to look back and see which kinds of of types of change have the most impact on negative you know outcomes. Um, other ones we're seeing on the automation space is interesting. Um, some customers of ours have been playing around with uh, Copilot, and this is from Microsoft, actually, so I can mention that. Uh, some of the Copilot tools are pretty cool to play around with. Um, they can actually go out there and they can explain what code does. They can actually write automation scripts, even in, in languages and tools that we didn't even know it knew. Amazingly, <laughs> we asked it to write automation script in one of our tools, and it did. We're like, how does it know our, our script? Well, it's, it's, it's in GitHub. It scans all the GitHub repos. There's tons of samples out there. So we were amazed. Clients were even using it, and they were showing us how we're using Copilot to write automation scripts in our own tool. And that was like, wow, that's mind blowing. Um, another interesting one we our R and D team has been playing around with is the um, some of the, the visual tools, uh, image image recognition, image capture, the ability to take a picture of a page, and be able to interpret what that page has. A lot of times you're doing test automation, you're dealing with a complex DOM structures if it's browser-based or, or maybe it's, it's um, uh, Citrix. So there's lots of challenging automation tests which are very hard to automate using traditional test automation tools. And the AI is able to look at a page and say, oh, this is a list of books. This is a list. This is a shopping cart. I understand that. I can test it. So it's going to start to take on some of the roles of exploratory testing. In our initial R&D, we can use AI to do exploratory testing, which is very scary and very interesting. And I don't know, another, another podcast all by itself. But so mm -hmm. I think there's tools out there to help various facets. And as Shreem mentioned, cybersecurity, everyone's using it already to do threat detection, threat analysis, and hacking. So on both the red and the white hat, hat side of, of, of the cyberspace, AI is already being used heavily. So I think those are some use cases I, I see in terms of different tools that people can look at. Right. So just to extend, you know, all those use cases are completely 100% uh, you know, valid. And just to extend those thought process, we've been talking about test-driven development, right? But many times people are not writing the test cases first before they actually write a piece of code. So, you know, AI can come in uh, and help right over here. So as a, a, a developer is beginning to write a piece of code, uh, as soon as he or she is writing, if X is greater than five, oh, okay, you know, immediately write the unit test case for this. Uh, develop that. Yes. Um, and you know you are writing uh, uh, x is greater than five, and oh, it was x initialized before. You know, so otherwise it could lead into memory problems and uninitialized variable being used and stuff like that. So thinking about from from not just test case generation, but also the code quality, um, the the compliance of the coding protocol that we have uh, and stuff like that. That's one element that I'm already thinking here. 
The other one I'm thinking about is also the computing resources. Um, how much CPU power will be required and uh, what element, uh, what extent of uh, um, you know heat may be generated in the battery because of this, how much storage may be required. Um, so, you know, what is the throughput in the, you know, in the memory uh, that is being transferred for the network and stuff like that. So these are some of the additional things that can come into. And, you know, in in, um, in software world, we always call one of these things as XCPs, especially in requirements management world, we call this uh, XCPs, which is the security, the portability, the reliability, and, you know, all those other things other than the functional uh, test case uh, requirement that you write. There also, you can come and start thinking in terms of, um, I have a HIPAA requirement as part of that HIPAA or SOX requirement. What are some of the test cases that I may have to create as soon as I write um, a module that has, um, you know, very protected information? Uh, you know, the, what roles can actually should access this? So immediately create a use case or test cases around that. That's and right. Evaluate that. So these are thoughts that I'm thinking through and they, these will emerge. And I'm not saying that there are tools immediately existing already to do that. Uh, but these things will emerge and they will come through. Uh, actually, on that, they're, they're, one of our partners, uh, Orca, they have that tool swiftly, which actually they've built it for particularly for government contracting. They have a lot of the U.S. government like statutory requirements built into the tool. And so when you start to write, use, uh, write, develop a project, it can actually build out an initial set of user stories based on the regulatory environment you're working in. And they, they focused a lot on the U.S. government side of things. But Shrim is right. You take you know, HIPAA or you take Sarbanes-Oxley, you take FDA, you take European legislation, Indian, uh, Brazilian banking registrations. Pick a country, pick a regulation. It can start to generate a lot of the, at least a lot of the compliance requirements uh, without a human having to do that because that stuff's well known it's codified in law it's a large it's also very difficult for humans to process because it's a lot of text awesome. it's written by lawyers it's actually a really good use case for AIs to, to tell me all the requirements for building a new system that, that supports accessibility like section 508 or the new European yeah. law on accessibility um, what do we have to do to comply with that um, you know particularly for some of these non-functional requirements which are well understood or at least well documented AI is a really good candidate because they're quite stable relatively speaking Yes. Awesome, awesome, guys. So uh, we have uh, hit the time limit. So, but it was a really great discussion. Got to learn a lot, and uh, thank you for sharing your insights on all of this, Adam and Sriram. Thank you for being part of the XP series. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us, and uh, check us out online on LinkedIn. We're always happy to have a conversation. Thank awesome. So we'll uh, include the LinkedIn details in the description below. Uh, I know this is a recorded webinar, but if you have any questions that you want to ask Adam or Sridham, feel free to include in the comments below and we'll be happy to answer them through them. You can also directly DM them or their LinkedIn's and get to know more. Uh, thanks for everyone who has been tuned in so far. Thanks for uh, checking out the XP series and uh, subscribe so that you can check out the rest of the episodes and get updated on the new episodes that are going to launch in coming weeks. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.